episode 224 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 10th of April, 2023. I'm Joe, and with me are Phelan. The first two equals the last one. Graham. Mr. Positive. And Will. I'm just thrilled to be here. <laughs> Don't tell them that I told you we were too <laughs> negative last time. Come on, we're supposed to just be being positive here. Anyway, let's start with some news. And uh, yeah, what else would be uh, the best thing to start with when it comes to positivity? <laughs> A quarter century of Mozilla. So it's been 25 years since they open source Netscape and the whole Mozilla thing, which led to Firefox, began. Missing open goals for 25 years. <laughs> <laughs> Way to keep it positive, Graham. Stop the clock. <laughs> we made it 20 seconds in. Uh, no, this is positive, man. Like Reflecting on 25 years and how, at the time, what Microsoft were doing with IE and the dominance that had, the fact that Mozilla came along with Firefox and became a genuine alternative. Do you remember opening multiple websites and individual windows of browsers? Mm. But it didn't come along with Firefox, did it? It took two specific renegade engineers to create what became Firefox. And I don't want to make it moany, but they've lost that kind of bootstrapping mentality that created Firefox and empowered the Mozilla Foundation. Well, let's just do a quick show of hands on an audio show. Anyway, <laughs> who is looking at our show notes in Firefox? Me. 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 So all four of us are looking at the show notes in Firefox. That has to be a win. Yeah, good point. So stop moaning about it. He's going high pitch. I don't believe he actually <laughs> believes you <laughs> <there> at all. <laughs> I just had yeah, a drink. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, it's great. It is still a good browser, though. And I know that Chrome dominates now. And on mobile, Firefox is basically nowhere. But still, as a desktop browser, it is good. It is good. I just, I guess the thing is, we're always got to be a bit worried the way web standards go, that they can very quickly go from you're doing really well to, oh, you don't support all of that new stuff. Well, you're a bit shit, really, aren't you? And that was kind of the way Firefox managed to get in, though, because it managed to get in ahead of that, beat Internet Explorer at their own game and change its name twice in the meantime and then become Firefox after. And as Graham says, it kind of has lost that renegade sort of undercut everybody else sort of attitude because it's so big and it's such an impossible thing to actually support all of those old bits and the new bits. You can very easily be outgunned. Well, we'll link to the announcement of the 25-year anniversary, but we'll also link to a post called Making the Impossible Possible Again, Looking Ahead at Mozilla's Next Quarter Century by Mark Sermon on the Mozilla blog. And... I think he makes a reasonable case for all of the AI bullshit that they're getting into. And uh, I know, Phelan, you have to uh, bite your tongue on this one, but they're not just resting on the Firefox laurels, and arguably they should be spending more effort on Firefox, but they are looking forward. They're looking forward to see what is the next thing, and, or, and at least what is the current thing, and trying to keep a toehold in that and at least attempting to stay relevant. I was thinking about the AI story as I was reading this article, and it got me thinking with reference to the previous article about how the web was 25 years ago and how that reflects on ChatGPT now being the you know AI in the future. 25 years ago, when Mozilla and Netscape and things were first coming out, if you needed to know something, you'd go to a search engine 
and you would type in what you wanted to know, and probably the first couple of hits you got would be an article or a blog post or just you know some writing that somebody had done, which would tell you the facts and the stuff you needed to know done. If you do that on the modern web, if you go to Google and you search for a fact, what you end up with is pages and pages of SEO bullshit with videos in there and shopping results and a whole load of articles that are written by either a robot or somebody that doesn't know the topic, and it's shit. If you use ChatGPT to search for something, what you get is much closer to what a search result would have been 25 years ago. It is the facts distilled and presented to you in a way that you can read them and understand and move on. So I genuinely think that well, in the case of ChatGPT, but also the the other AI projects that they're looking at, I do think that this is a better way of using the web, and they are right to do that. Hmm. <laughs> well, apart from the issue that some of the facts are going to be just straight up wrong, I mean, just ask ChatGPT who I am, and it'll just make up all sorts of shit about me being a software developer and stuff. But that aside it is more useful than search for some things. For example, the other day, it was like a said command or something that I was looking up and I couldn't remember the syntax on it. Tried with Google, and was just like, ah, oh, what? No. And then just tried ChatGPT and it just spat it out perfectly. So there's, there's some things that it is definitely superior at, but it's not going to totally replace search. And, and so Mozilla should be at least trying to influence the direction of how all of this is going, I think. And also, they need to get a foot in the door now to try and slow down, prevent, or you know, otherwise interrupt the money people and the marketing people coming along and just ruining what is a useful service at the moment. For example, looking up Vim shortcuts in ChatGPT or whatever. Have a tool that is under control of the users or is focused to a specific task. Have it out in the open. Have it locally installable if necessary but try and protect the thing that makes the web brilliant from all of the people who would rather turn it into a marketing tool. And the only company that I can think of that are going to do that is Mozilla. Well, either way, I would like Mozilla to be around in another 25 years. And when the idea of a desktop or laptop computer is just laughable to young people, and it's it's like you know a wireless with pictures or whatever, I still want to be having an up-to-date Firefox that I can use on my laptop. So I think that we have to support them. I think we have to try and find the positive in what they're doing because in a sea of bastards, even one lifeboat of, I don't know where this metaphor is going, whatever, you know <laughs> what I'm talking about. Everyone's a bastard. Mozilla is less of a bastard than most people, so stick around for another 25 years, please. Great news. Twitter has open-sourced their recommendation algorithm so that For You tab that seemingly gives you random tweets from people you don't know and lots of ones from Elon, that's now totally open source on GitHub. Asterisk. The asterisk being that it's not really very usable because the stuff that you need to use it alongside wasn't open sourced. But it did give us a few laughs. So I suppose that's the positive angle to this story. I mean, Mozilla was a challenge, but finding something positive <laughs> about <laughs> modern day Twitter. Just the week also that I use, there's a brilliant open source Android client called Harpy for Twitter. 
And it's had to close down because of the limitations on the closing down the API unless you've got, you know, $40,000 a month or whatever it is. But I will say, I really hope the developer continues it and ports it over to another social media platform um, because it's a beautifully designed piece of open source software. But as for Twitter, hmm, I'm open-minded about most things, but it's too little too late. The whole thing's becoming even worse as far as I can tell. Yeah, it's like they got a small bucket of water for the tire fire and chucked it on it and said, look, <laughs> it's getting better. I'm struggling to give a shit about Twitter stories at the moment. They're just never-ending stream of bad decisions and increasing irrelevance of, of the platform. I still check it quite regularly, perhaps too regularly, but I think that's just habit as much as anything. just seems to be irrelevant now and meh, nobody cared. Well, for me, it's a good case study in how not to take over a company hmm. and how not to run a social network. And it's it's almost that sort of car crash, can't <laughs> look away situation at this point. <laughs> yeah, but making it a study, it doesn't take a genius to see that it was a disaster from the very beginning, even before he won the bid and tried to get out of it. It's not, it's not even close to what I think most of us would consider regular behavior for a company like Twitter. It's, it, I don't see what there is to learn other than don't become a billionaire and so disconnected from reality that you're no longer able to make any reasonable decisions. Well, I think what there is to learn is if you are involved in Mastodon and the Fediverse, just whatever Musk does, just do the total opposite <laughs> and you'll succeed. So I should close source the algorithm, I see. <laughs> what algorithm? Ah, that's what they want you to think. Mm. There is actually, yeah, because there is a sort of trending topics thing, at least in the uh, official Mastodon app. And I assume that's open source somewhere. I've never gone looking for it. But it's not as engaging as the Twitter one. It doesn't give you all the outrageous shit that just is there to make you seethe. Yeah, I think I think there's an awful lot less of the outrage hosepipe, is that what we could call it? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I go on Twitter. I, I check certain stuff that's still there. It's only... it's very few accounts that I'm really interested in anymore. But funnily enough, it's even announcements from like government organizations or the like. And I don't know if they would ever switch over to Mastodon. I would kind of hope that they would, even if it was their own instance or something like that. But as of yet, haven't. It's just, I don't care anymore. It sort of died. It's sort of the way I actually went back to the point where I realized that Google died to me. And it was, it was when Google Reader was got rid of. I kind of had an account then, and I didn't even use Google Reader, but the way that they killed it off, and it was so useful to people that I knew, that I just went, you know what, I don't trust these guys anymore, and that's it. And it's kind of the same with Twitter. It's just like, the second space Karen got all of it, it was ruined. Well, I saw two toots on Mastodon that were almost back-to-back today. Twitter today is wild. The guy calling for cruise missiles on data centers to stop AI is doubling down on legalese. Was that you? <laughs> anyway, people just asking questions about public hangings of criminals and Russian politicians stating that their goal for ethnic cleansing of Ukraine. And that's Miguel de Casa. And then two toots away from that is Charlie, who is a listener of this show. And she said, anyway, it's a sunny public holiday here in Berlin. My wife is building a bike and I'm soldering together a new weather station. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we want. <laughs> that is just the difference between Twitter and Mastodon. Mastodon is just your wholesome, just good news stories and, and stuff you want to hear about. Like, yeah, I'd love to hear about that new weather station. That sounds awesome. 
Whereas the other shit on Twitter, no, no thanks. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash late night Linux, support the show, and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace, or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups, and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to linode.com slash late night Linux, create a free account, and you'll get $100 in credit and support the show. That's linode.com slash late night Linux. The state of open source 3D printing in 2023. This is from Joseph Prusa, I think you say that. Graham, this is your area of expertise. Well, I wouldn't say expertise, but yes, uh, Joseph Prusa, he's the person in charge of Prusa 3D printers based on open source designs that are very, very old. Um, their name escapes me now. But he's been incredibly successful, I think. I can't really tell. But from the way that the brand does, from the number of printers they say they sell for years, I have the Mark III. And this is semi-tied in with the release of the MKS Mark IV. It's almost a part of a publicity campaign. But it's been a long time between printer releases. And I am hugely impressed with the Prusa printer that I have that I built myself from a kit. The fact that they can do it in such a way that the parts are 3D printed with their own printer and then you build it. And then it just, whenever I turn it on and print something, it just works. And it's incredible when you look at the precision of these things. So his company, the company does a good job. They build on open source designs and they release all of their designs for open source. Now, I think... He created a blog post to coincide with the release of the Mark IV because there's an awful lot of clones of the Prusa printers because they're open source. They are hardware's open source and people can print their own and there are people that sell them for a fraction of the price and there are places where you can buy them. And he's a bit annoyed about this at the open source. or This is what he's implying anyway in this blog post, that he's not too happy with the open source licensing that lets other people copy his the community's work and and pass it off as their own and basically build 100% compatible printers and it's the same old argument this is interesting because it's to do with hardware and he's calling for a new license that doesn't i guess let people make derivatives and make money off it which of course it's the discussion that we've had many times over whether people should or shouldn't and i understand joseph prusa's issues with it and why he's raised it but i disagree and of course it fundamentally goes against the ideas of open source and what i think he built his community and the foundations of the business on i'd have to kind of wonder what does he expect something to be open source for if you can't actually make versions of it like is it just in name then yeah i I never quite got that impression from like what does he expect that to be i I like the retort that was given back to him by Hmm. stargirl flowers that's a great re- response. It's like, if you create something that's open source, it sort of no longer ceases to be yours directly. It becomes a community's because everybody can take it and change it. And it's a bit like the way uh, Elasticsearch 
had that fight with Amazon, it was, mm. you know, it's like this, well, oh yeah, we, we made it open source, but really, you know, you got to come to us if you want stuff. It's like, well, it doesn't really work like that. The thing is that I think Proust has been incredibly successful. So I don't know. I've not looked into, I don't know if you can look into the figures, but it seems to me that the company has been incredibly successful. Um, they make a whole range of printers. It seems to me that they make a lot of money. And it's always amazing that it's not companies that seem to be struggling that kind of make these statements. It's companies that seem to be flush with success that then say, oh, you know what? I'm not too sure about these open source licenses that have built the foundations of our success. I think we should look at different things. Yeah, and his proposed license is just not an open license, is it? You can't just put those restrictions in place and still call it an open license. No, but then there's a vast majority of other companies that are doing everything closed source and they don't even have these discussions. Yeah, that's true. It is better to at least be somewhat open than totally proprietary. But you're right. It does tend to be these companies that have success and then that success starts to wane or they, they feel threats to that success. And that's when they start moaning about the license. Yeah, or they see an extra 5% or 10% in their margin, you know. <laughs> They think, well, you know, we could be 10% more successful with no other effort than changing our license. But isn't part of the success the fact that it was open in the first place and people knew that they could invest in the Prusa ecosystem knowing that even if the company goes away, everything is still out in the open and you can get spare parts from third parties and stuff. It's like the self-made billionaires who start off with like a one million fund from daddy and, you know, <laughs> make use of various state given things like roads and the like. Yeah, it's very easy to forget about those things, I think. Yeah. And I think it's what gave Joseph the mindset of being able to build a business. I, I really liken it to the internet. You know, I haven't got any particular sympathy with people that try to make money from content on the internet, even though I've been one of those people. It's like the internet was developed to be free and open with a set of open standards. And sure, people have tried to commercialise it and shoehorn it into, st I mean, people are, it's, it's almost taken over in that way, but I haven't got any sympathy for them when they turn around and say, well, we need to have a paywall. And I think it's very much the same thing with this. The whole idea was born from open source, the fact that these projects existed in the first place. Hang on, Graham, we can continue this discussion after I've done a quick advert. <laughs> it's about how you monetize, though, isn't it? Because people have to eat, people have to pay their rent and all the rest of it. And yeah, you can just do things as, as a hobby, and lots of people do, but I do have a lot of sympathy for a company that makes these 3D printers, makes it all open and as open as they possibly can, and then people just make a bunch of knockoffs and sell them yeah. for less than, than they do. I do too. I don't think a new license would make much difference because the same factories in China that are churning out PCBs from open hardware for a fraction of the cost, a license probably not going to stop them doing that and selling it on you know dodgy marketplaces. So I, I, a license is a nice, easy to understand, easy to create mechanism to try and restrict this from happening. But the reality is it won't make a blind bit of difference. Bordering on the xenophobic there, Will, but uh, you are right. I don't think it's necessarily just the Chinese or whatever, but yeah, people will make ripoffs of stuff regardless of the license and people will violate open source licenses. Yeah. And it's the same with Arduino mm. and the same with countless other projects. And 
I think a lot of us, one of the ways that we, we were talking about this last time, but I, one of the ways I do try and support projects is to buy at least one or two legitimate versions of that mm. thing. And I have done in this case, and I don't regret it for a moment. Well, it's in your interests to support the company that is actually making the original mm. because you want them to stick around and they've made this Mark IV. You want there to be a Mark V and Mark VI that just gets better and better. I mean, one way to look at it is there are people who just physically cannot afford to buy the real thing. And this might give them the ability to get up to the point where, you know, they're using what is effectively the same thing, but maybe not. And then eventually maybe they can get the real thing. Like maybe they're in a developing nation even, and they're, you know, they're trying to start off their new business idea where they're, I don't know, making chassis for mobile phones or God knows what. I mean, who knows? And this gives them the leg up that they need. And then when it comes to it, they can actually get back and fund back into him because they know that was the original thing. Yeah, I totally agree. It's an, And it's the same with open source because you're investing your time into learning a system that you know isn't going to be pulled from underneath your feet. And hopefully that leads to better innovation and better products for everyone. That's positive. I need to sit down. On to a bit of admin then. First of all, thank you everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate it. If you want to join those people, you can go to latenightlinux.com slash support. And remember, for $10 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed that includes this show, Linux Downtime, and Linux After Dark. And you even get some episodes early. And who knows, if we ever do any more shows at some point in the near future, they might end up in that feed as well, but no promises. And if you want to get in contact with us, you can email show at latenightlinux.com. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Tailscale. Go to tailscale.com. Tailscale is a VPN service that makes the devices and applications you own accessible anywhere in the world, securely and effortlessly. It enables encrypted point-to-point connections using WireGuard, which means only devices on your private network can communicate with each other. Unlike traditional VPNs, which tunnel all network traffic through a central gateway server, Tailscale creates a peer-to-peer mesh network. It handles complex network configuration on your behalf, so you don't have to. Network connections between devices pierce through firewalls and routers as if they weren't there, so there's no need to manually configure port forwarding. Tailscale is available for Linux, Mac, Windows, Raspberry Pi and ARM, Android, iOS, Synology, and for devices that don't allow additional software to be installed, such as printers and other embedded devices, where you can set up a subnet router to act as a gateway, relaying traffic from your Tailscale network onto your physical subnet. So go to tailscale.com and try it for free on up to 20 devices. That's tailscale.com. Funding fast just seems to be something we just cannot get away from. And in the last couple of weeks, three things have uh, made it into my dock. So I thought we could talk about them. The first one, help us fund equipment from Ambien. So Ambien is basically your go-to OS for non-Raspberry Pi single board computers. So if it's from... You know, if it's insert name of fruit pie, there's a reasonable (laughs) chance that Ambien will support it and have some images for it. And uh, anyway, so the Ambien project needs money for their CICD system and uh, everyone benefits from it. So we'll link to that in the show notes anyway, help us fund equipment. But also Bloomberg launched their FOSS fund. And this is quite an interesting one. Bloomberg, you don't think of as necessarily to do with software at all, but They use a lot of open source software internally. So they decided they'll set up this fund where they'll donate $10,000 each to three projects per quarter. 
and the employees of Bloomberg will suggest and then ultimately vote on which projects are going to get the money. And it's not life-changing amounts of money for any project, but it's a great example of what companies could be doing, not necessarily at that level. Bigger companies could be more money, smaller companies could be less. But if this was just part of the culture that every company gave money to the open source projects that they depend on, I think we'd be in a better position. It's not some great solution, but I think it contributes to the the effort at least. Yeah, I agree. It's very difficult to think of a, a better way of doing this for a random company of any size to say, we want to support some projects. We're not going to be able to put people on this because either we don't use the project enough or we haven't got enough spare capacity within our engineering team. What can we do to support a few projects? Now, very conveniently, the maths comes out to about $120,000 per year, which is probably a sort of mid-level engineer. So effectively, they're saying we're going to put one person on a project, you know, spread across multiple projects. So it's not a, it, it's a relatively small amount, but it's not inconsiderable. It's, um, you know, it's, it's okay. It's a good step in the right direction. I like the idea that their engineers are allowed to vote on it. I do wonder if it would be better if they could assign a value to the projects that they depend on and, you know, divvy it up that way. But this is, this seems fair. This seems like a nice, a nice option for their engineers to choose. So great. If everybody did this, there would be a significant amount more money coming into the projects. I do think, however, that pull requests are worth more than money. That would be the best way for people to contribute to these projects. But failing that, I can't think of a better way for a big company to help a project without a lot of red tape and without a lot of admin going into it. Good quality pull requests. Yeah, but, you know, GitHub need to give away free T-shirts for pull requests every October. So, <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I guess the advantage is that you get to spread across more than one project. Whereas if you had one developer, they wouldn't be necessarily committing to everything that you're using. So this is probably good for a large company. Well, what about this thanks.dev thing that is doing the rounds? The idea of this is you give it access to your GitHub. It works out which open source projects your project depends on. You give it a budget every month. And then it automatically divvies it up accordingly. Now, that sort of sounds a little bit like Flatter and the whole micropayments thing that we shat on last time. (laughs) But this is automated, which is good. And it's also more aimed at companies rather than individuals, I think. Now, this is a for-profit enterprise. I think it's a fellow in Australia or or a, a team in Australia, maybe. And they make no bones about it that they are going to make money from this. But... It sort of sounds like a reasonable idea. I don't know. What do we think? It takes away some of the effort on the part of the people spending the money that they don't have to go through and find all of the dependencies themselves. So that's a good thing. On the less good thing, you've got to sign into GitHub and you know point your project at it. If you're going to sign into GitHub, you could use GitHub's own built-in sponsorship then I guess GitHub take a slice instead of thanks.dev. It does do GitLab, though. Yes, this is very true. It does do GitLab, which is good. But yeah, it seems like an interesting idea. It's a shame that they take a slice of the money, but I don't begrudge them getting paid for the admin and the um, the systems that they have to build and maintain. So from a 
corporate sponsorship point of view, I think it's quite a nice solution. What would I do with my SourceForge account? <laughs> <laughs> well, and it automates it. I think that is the key. It's very low effort for companies to mm. engage with. It's kind of set it up once. You can specifically block list certain projects if you think that they are not deserving for whatever reason. So you can go in and have some manual control, but otherwise it does seem like a reasonable solution because unlike the Bloomberg thing where there's a, an overhead, there's an administrative overhead of deciding who they're going to give the money to each quarter, someone has to spend time to do that every quarter. Whereas with this idea, it's just to set it and forget it. And just every month, a certain amount goes, gets divvied up, and it's, it's automation that companies want. Everything's automated these days. It's like the sort of DevOps of donations. They should use that. <laughs> we better get out of here then. We'll be back next week with some discoveries and maybe some feedback. But until then, I've been John. I've been Phelan. I've been Graham. And I've been Will. See you later. <laughs>